It's hard to imagine this now, as Nickelodeon currently functions as a juvenile tentacle of the Viacom oligarchy, but the Nickelodeon brand was created as a loss leader in the late 1970s. It was included in Warner cable packages to convince parents that there was wholesome educational content for their little ones on top of the prestigious, salacious, and blockbuster programming that people were actually interested in. Nick was supposed to be a kid's PBS that ran all day long. Its first show was Pinwheel, a no-budget Sesame Street knockoff that was also nightmare fuel. And Nick held on to that identity for a surprisingly long time. Execs throughout the 80s and 90s continually expressed that Nickelodeon served as counter-programming to the crass, cynical toy commercials masquerading as children's programming that ran elsewhere, making it pretty weird that iterations of Transformers, Ninja Turtles, and Power Rangers air on the network now. Uh, the network did produce tie-in merchandise here and there. This is a media platform that exists under capitalism, after all. Still, the toys, video games, and shampoo with Rugrats or Eureka's Castle insignia paled in comparison uh, to the scale uh, competing franchises slapped their logos onto. SpongeBob SquarePants changed all of that. SpongeBob was such a big hit that not taking advantage of its merchandising potential felt absurd. That's only the most obvious way that SpongeBob changed Nick, and children's media in general. We'll be talking about the various facets of this towering media icon in this recording. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is Rachel. Hello, this was like kind of my choice because you didn't grow up watching Spongebob. No, I did not. And also present on this, on their uh, debut outing, is Riley, joining us via Discord. Yeah, Riley's the mega fan. Hello, yes, literally, I was born, I was born in 98, Spongebob came out in 99, I was made for, I was the demographic, baby. Oh, so you're also a mega fan of the podcast, too, so you get to yeah. be on oh, an yeah. episode. <laughs> yes, oh yeah, I've listened to quite a few episodes, they're great, uh, as a dog walker. <laughs> figured that Riley's perspective was necessary, particularly because of me. I mean, I was a Nickelodeon kid growing up. I eagerly watched Salute Your Shorts, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, Ren and Stimpy, and Nick Arcade on many lazy afternoons. And I taped Snick Blocks on Saturday night. I pledged to the big help. And I tried to win the grand prize on Nick or Treat. But yeah, I had pretty much aged out of Nick's Target demo when SpongeBob hit. I had classmates who loved SpongeBob, but they were all stoners and that wasn't really my scene. <laughs> I think Spongebob could be a stoner show for sure. I've gotten, like, you yeah. know, a little tipsy and watched Spongebob. I mean, I am... laugh at some more characters more than others. I mean, especially right. Patrick, probably. I'm an American millennial and a nerdy one at that, so I have some Arrested Development. Uh, teenage Ryan still liked his cartoons... Late 30s Ryan still watches kids' cartoons, but <laughs> yeah, I had migrated the Cartoon Network as a teenager. Like, I was more about Toonami and Adult Swim and Samurai Jack, Powerpuff Girls, and reruns of Looney Tunes shorts. That's the stuff that spoke to me, so SpongeBob more or less passed me by. Yeah, I mean, I liked SpongeBob a lot. I watched the movie in, the I watched the movie in theaters. Oh, you did? I did. I, uh, I, I thought I owned it because uh, I'd watched it so many times, and I joke this, but it's not really a joke with uh, our friend group. I know, like, every line verbatim because 
it's just ingrained in my head, but I realized it wasn't because I owned it, it was because I rented it from Blockbuster so many times. Now that <laughs> is, mean. that is like the most like zillennial thing ever, that you, you watch Spongebob, right. but you also know what Blockbuster is. Yeah, we're yeah. all dating ourselves here. <laughs> yep. And uh, Rachel picked out like 15 uh, shorts for me to watch, and then she couldn't narrow it down any further than that, so she asked me to like pick six. Yeah, well, we watched about 11 or 12 episodes. It was funny, though, because when you asked me to pick episodes, Ryan, I picked episodes that I thought were the best or ones that I liked versus you wanted, like, a more of a series overview because we watched a lot of Squidward episodes. Yeah, you're more of a Squidward person, and I was like, wow, um, what about the squirrel lady? Yeah, I mean, Sandy's great. I love Sandy. I know. We, we watched the Alaskan bullworm episode. <laughs> Pioneers used to ride these for miles. Well, that's a different episode. Never mind. Okay, the first one we talked about... Just take the kitty bottom and push it somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) The first one we talked about was uh, Help Wanted, which is the first episode. That's helpful. We had to do the first episode. All right. We open with a French narrator who's modeled after Jacques Cousteau, although uh, they decided that they wanted a less perfect impression of Jacques Cousteau. He sounded a little bored, and they didn't want the first voice you heard on every Spongebob episode to sound kind of out of it. It's like, uh, goo the goon. And it's Tom Kenny, too, which took me a while to realize as a kid that it's the same Spongebob voice. Well, yeah, he introduces us to an aquatic city known as Bikini Bottom, uh, containing an ecstatic, hyperactive, optimistic, naive, and friendly sponge named SpongeBob SquarePants. And in like in French, he's Bob the Sponge. Yeah. SpongeBob <laughs> gets ready to apply for a job as the fry cook at the Krusty Krab local fast food eatery, much to the annoyance of the restaurant's cashier and SpongeBob's grumpy ass neighbor, an octopus named Squidward Tentacles. SpongeBob initially reconsiders his decision on the perceived count that he is not good enough for the position, until his best friend, a starfish named Patrick Starr, convinces him otherwise. (laughs) Humored with SpongeBob's gullibility and enthusiasm, both Squidward and the restaurant's owner, a crab named Mr. Eugene Krabs, decide to manipulate SpongeBob by sending him on an impossible errand, a snipe hunt, so so to speak, to purchase a seemingly rare, high-caliber spatula. The two believe that SpongeBob is unqualified, and conclude that he will not return. Soon after SpongeBob's departure, five buses containing ravenous anchovies stop at the Krusty Krab, all furiously demanding meals. The the um the anchovies design is so funny though. They're like little like meep. finger fish with like a little yeah. What do they go? What do they say, Riley? They say meat. Can we just make an orderly line and <laughs> what I, I forget the whole line, but then uh, yeah. it's just a pause. And yeah. then beep, beep, beep. I know. I interject with one of the best lines in the episode, which is, whose first words were, may I take your order? <laughs> <laughs> Unable to satisfy the anchovies' demands in time, Squidward and Mr. Krabs are left to deal with the increasingly more hostile mob. Uh, The anchovies start piling up, forcing Squidward and Mr. Krabs to flee to the top of a support pole. Believing that they are about to be killed, SpongeBob surprises the two of them by returning from his errand, having bought a spatula perfectly matching Mr. Krabs' (laughs) ridiculous specifications. Which he uses to speedily cook Krabby Patties, the signature dish of the eatery, for all of the anchovies. 
After the mob subsides, SpongeBob is officially welcomed as a Krusty Krab employee, much to Squidward's chagrin. After Mr. Krabs leaves to count the day's profits, Patrick arrives and orders a Krabby Patty and is hurled from the establishment upon a mostly unseen and audibly manic reprise of SpongeBob's cooking feat. Uh, the pilot ends with Squidward calling for Mr. Krabs in the hopes of getting SpongeBob in trouble for the presumed mess he has created. It's funny watching that episode because, you know, it's the first one and it's weird seeing Squidward and Mr. Krabs get along with each other. Yeah, the at least from my perspective, it seems like the show is mostly fully formed from the jump. Like, everyone mm-hmm. already knew what they were doing, but, you know, I guess as they went further along, it was more funny for Squidward and Mr. Krabs to have an antagonistic relationship. Yeah. Like, um, some things that weren't planned ended up being funny and were introduced over the course of the show. Like, apparently, Patrick yelling loud, non-sequitur nonsense was supposed to be a one-off thing, but there was like, no, that's just as gonna be a thing patrick does now little 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 yeah stuff like that <laughs> all right the next one that uh we're talking about is jellyfishing which yes. seems like another like early obvious epi- seri- series early... overview that yeah. establishes things it's an early episode also yeah it's like one of the second like episode or like the second like in the airing episodes i believe and so i try to like uh i have like a uh i told this i sent pictures to rachel but i have like a lot of thorough notes for every episode except for this one because i try to like have something to say about here but like what i wrote down was just like let's abuse squidward the episode <laughs> Once again, it's speaking from an outsider's perspective, that could be a lot of episodes, at least from what I can tell. Yeah, I, I picked it just because of the scene with, you know, the jellyfish are an important part of the SpongeBob universe, and also just the part where Patrick puts the net through Squidward's hand and his tentacles, and he's like, firmly grasp it! <laughs> They're like bee butterflies. Yeah, like an actual documentary. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We open with SpongeBob and Patrick taking Squidward, who is recovering from a bicycle accident and a full body cast, (laughs) on a jellyfishing trip. This is a sport involving, like, capturing jellyfish and butterfly nets. As they arrive in the jellyfish fields, a jellyfish stings Squidward, so he starts going after it for revenge. (laughs) He manages to catch the jellyfish and bangs his net triumphantly against a surface that turns out to be a queen jellyfish. Yeah, (laughs) a very large, angry jellyfish. The queen jellyfish chases after him, attacking (laughs) him. It's so funny, though, because... He's, like, just pressing his little wheelchair forward, going as fast as he can, and, like, the queen jellyfish is just going as she goes. She's like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> Made me think of the Evil Dead tracking shot. Anyways, the queen jellyfish just mutilates Squidward with a massive off-screen sting, which happens off-screen, as I mentioned, so it just feels worse. Mm-hmm. The next day, the bandaged SpongeBob and Patrick go to the now-life-support-bound Squidward's house <laughs> to apologize, only to be chased away by the jellyfish caught by Squidward. As Squidward laughs about this, he is discovered and then attacked by the queen jellyfish again. And he just goes, out. Yeah, so that one's pretty bone simple. A lot of these are very bone simple, which we'll be getting into in a bit. 
But the next one that we're talking about is Rock Bottom, which is the, the one that I suggested be on here because I, I saw like four Spongebobs before this, but this is the one that left an impression on me. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently it's considered one of the best ones. I hadn't seen it in years because honestly, when I was a kid, it kind of scared me. I hated the idea of being like stuck in a place that I couldn't get out of. I, oh, I, yeah, it's a combination of a couple, like, horrors. One, the dark. Two, mm-hmm. the unfamiliar. And three, public transportation. Especially tra- public transportation in America. Yeah, I definitely yeah. have an early formative memory of, like, getting on a bus unaccompanied as a kid and end up being, like, dropped off in some place where I didn't know where oh, I was. Oh, that's scary. And that's, like, a, yeah, that's a very, like, primal sensation, and I think that's one of the reasons why this was picked for an episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the first time I took uh, Boston public transportation, like the T, Lydia, uh, Rachel's sister, had to (laughs) write it down on a piece of paper and then write it down on my hand and then text it to me. And then I still, like, cried and, like, asked him to, like, where's the red line? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually I got to South Station safe and sound. Because every kid's got a story like that. So, you know, hashtag relatable. Mm -hmm. Make it into a SpongeBob episode. Yep. Oh, yeah. SpongeBob and Patrick board a bus to go home from Glove World, a (laughs) glove-themed amusement park. It appears in a few other episodes, too. They accidentally board the wrong bus, which then takes them down a 90-degree cliff, leading to an, um... (laughs) like Mariana's Trench type zone called Rock Bottom, which is inhabited by many strange deep sea animals. Patrick becomes frightened of Rock Bottom, so Spongebob leaves him at the bus stop while he goes to get a bus schedule. As soon as uh, Spongebob leaves, the next bus to Bikini Bottom arrives with Patrick leaving Spongebob behind. (laughs) Unable to climb the 90 degree cliff, Spongebob decides to wait for the next bus. After a number of comedic mishaps prevent him from boarding a bus, Spongebob heads to the bus station and waits in there for a very, very long time. It's one of those patented, um, three weeks later yeah. type things. <laughs> the, there's one where he orders a package and it says four to six weeks later. <laughs> By the time he reaches the front of the line, he finds out that the next bus leaves in five seconds. <laughs> he misses it and learns that it was the last one until morning. Mm. As the lights go out, for the night at the bus station, SpongeBob hears a resident of Rock Bottom and dashes back to the cliff in terror. The resident is revealed to be a friendly-looking anglerfish creature who has retrieved SpongeBob's glove balloon. Uh, the creature blows up the balloon and ties it to SpongeBob's wrist, which allows him to rise up the cliff. Believing that SpongeBob is still stuck in Rock Bottom, Patrick boards a bus and heads down the cliff to fetch him. <laughs> SpongeBob spots him on the way out, but decides to leave Patrick on his own as to not get stuck again. I got it's such a funny episode. I, I really I like the scene where Patrick doesn't know which bathroom to use because of like Yeah, <laughs> it's just two question marks. Yeah, and I think it's just sort of like use whatever bathroom you can. <laughs> yeah. The the part where SpongeBob is like being actively thwarted by the buses when he's trying to get on them. Yes. Like that feels like very nineteen forties Fletcher Brothers to me. Oh yeah, I think so too yeah i guess one thing you could take away from it like i guess i was like trying to watch it, like what what's to be learned here uh, <laughs> patience i don't know because if he had just waited there he could have just gotten on the bus 
in, in theory, but in practice, the buses were waiting for him to leave so they could ditch him. Yup. Maybe they don't like SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, this is a popular one. Uh, it has a theme park ride. Oh, really? It yeah. does? Where? Uh, I forget where it is, but it's called like SpongeBob's Rock Bottom Ride or something like that. Well, we're going to put you on it, Riley. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Why? I think it'd be fun for you, but I'll, I'll come and get you like Patrick. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Uh, I hope that this is this at like I, I don't know where it's located, but is it located on the on the remains of where the Nickelodeon Hotel used to be? Didn't you stay at that as a kid? I sure did. I stayed at the Nickelodeon Suite, and I think we also went. This was like for spring break back when I was in elementary school. I think we also went to Disney World or Disneyland, whichever one is in Orlando. But World. I, uh, yeah, I yeah, I I did not care about Disney. I don't have like any memory. I just have memory. <laughs> There is a fun defunct land about the Nickelodeon Hotel in yeah, Orlando. Yeah, I've seen that oh, one. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Alright, the next one, uh, this is one that Rachel insisted on called Squidville. Yeah, Squidville is probably one of my like early SpongeBob favorites. And also, I lived in a development as a child called Lullwater. My family called it Dullwater, but it was very similar to Squidville in the that all of the buildings looked the same. And I think the problem with the management there is that they thought that they were going to get a bunch of, you know, young professionals living there. And what they got were military families, like us, divorced single parents, and retirees. So that equaled kids. Kids everywhere. And they just were not happy with the fact that kids are messy. Kids want to do chalk drawings on the sidewalk, you know? They would wash away our chalk drawings because they didn't... Yep, I remember crying about it. And like... The poor, so the poor landscaper lady was like, I'm so sorry, I have to do this because my job. And I'm like, Ooh. Oh, yeah, tragic. I oh know. That's so horrible. I guess that, that's probably why I thought that Squidville was so funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. I uh, I lived in a gated community, so oh boy. And I was kind of oblivious. So all of those jokes kind of went over the, my head. I was also um, not a big Squidward fan as a kid, and it's watching him now. I'm still like, I like Squidward, Patrick Butter. When are we gonna go back to them? Because I'm just like, I was always like really worried, like on SpongeBob's behalf. I was just like, Squidward's like being so mean to him, <laughs> especially during that. We we didn't, we won't com- we're not covering this episode, but the uh, Christmas special that they did um where Squidward's just like a total asshole but then he finally is like oh I was a big jerk oh yeah I don't think I've seen that one in a while but um Squidville's still a great episode yeah it makes me think of this uh, onion compilation which is like our dumb century which imagined like the onion launched in 1900 oh my god I love I love our dumb century and the and the one about Levittown the headline was ant-like conformity now affordable yeah (laughs) anyway Squidville centers on Spongebob and Patrick while doing another one of their little wacky escapades completely demolishes Squidward's house with their reef blowers. Mm-hmm. Finally done with his crazy neighbors once and for all, he swears. Squidward <laughs> moves into a gated community called Tentacle Acres with his own kind to find enjoyment, and he is initially overwhelmed and overjoyed by the results. Canned 
of bread. Yeah, uh, he's just surrounded by a bunch of other, like, nerdy Esquid people, all voiced with the same actor in order to drive that point home. And he does the same thing day in and day out, plays a little clarinet with everybody, mm-hmm. you know, goes shopping for the same thing. The same canned bread. Uh, he eventually becomes incredibly uh, bored of this. Yeah. <laughs> and his ennui is finally just set off by an encounter with a reef blower. Uh, the citizens get angry and try to chase him away as Squidward starts playfully throwing SpongeBob type pranks upon everybody. <laughs> Squidward eventually uses the reef blower manically and flies out of the, uh, the tentacle acres. SpongeBob and Patrick, who happened to go into town, had noticed what was happening, but did not realize that it was Squidward. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of funny, like, every time, you know, Spongebob is asking a squid, a, a, an octopus, if they're Squidward, and I'm like, wow, Spongebob, you're really profiling these people, aren't you? <laughs> I love how they're just like, are you Squidward? No. Are you Squidward? No. And then Patrick asks the fire agent, are you Squidward? He's like, it's okay, take your time. <laughs> I, mean, I suppose also, there could be a racial uh, connotation uh, underneath it, but <laughs> on the other hand, they do go out of their way to make all of the octopi look like exactly Squidward, like and they Squidward. have the same voice yeah. actor. What were you going to say, Riley? I made a note. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I made a note watching this, uh, and I said it was uh, to Brian earlier, that the, that whole episode kind of reminds me of the, of an episode of Seinfeld where Elaine gets new friends, and they're just these regular guys. The and bizarro Jerry! Like, yeah, normal Jerry! <laughs> Sorry, you, she's like, when George wants to go with them, she's like, we already have a George. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They already have George. Mm-hmm. All right, the next one we're ha- we're doing is the marching band one. Yeah, band geeks. I Yay! think this might just be the most famous episode of SpongeBob. Yeah, I haven't watched this episode since I've been in marching band, so it was quite an experience to rewatch it. Well, how does it compare experience-wise? <laughs> well, I can say that what happened to those black twirlers actually does happen, so you have to be very careful. But also just <laughs> Squidward, I just never noticed, the, uh, or like never really found it as funny, just Squidward like, making those stupid puns or stupid jokes and just being like, <laughs> marching band humor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, and also just uh, the whole fight scene. I made a note just saying that's how marching band just be like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised that band geeks wound up becoming animators on SpongeBob. That that tracks. Yeah. All right, Squidward gets a call from his wealthy former high school classmate and rival, Squilliam Fancyson, who has succeeded in everything in which Squidward has failed, including music. Squilliam reveals to Squidward that he has become the leader of a band scheduled to play at a venue called the Bubble Bowl, but he will be busy at that time and cannot attend. Squilliam then derisively suggests that Squidward's band should substitute for him at this Bubble Bowl, correctly believing that Squidward does not have a band. However, Squidward insists that he indeed does have a great band, and he accepts the challenge. (laughs) He then assembles a large marching band composed of various Bikini Bottom residents, almost none of whom have any musical experience. (laughs) During their one week of training, the band performs consistently poorly and fails to improve at all. Uh, On the last day of practice, the band members start insulting and blaming each other for their crappy performances. These girls ain't just for attracting mates! causing a huge chaotic brawl. As the band class ends, the band members calm down and start filing out of the building. 
but before they leave, Squidward appears outside, despondently telling them not to perform, and he then goes home distraught over his additional failure. However, SpongeBob convinces the other band members to go through with the performance for Squidward's sake, and he takes command of their training. On the day of the concert, Squilliam shows up at the venue entrance to mock Squidward, well, where Squidward claims that his band has died in a marching accident. Uh, the <laughs> band then immediately arrives, and Squidward reluctantly proceeds with the performance. They enter into the Bubble Bowl, a large glass dome that elevates them into a live-action football stadium full of human fans. <laughs> To Squidward's surprise, the band is tremendously uh, successful, playing sweet victory for the crowd. Uh, Squilliam enters a state of shock and faints, leading Squidward to happily conduct the band and celebrate. Yay! Yeah, Spongebob has a lot of, like, cutaways to live-action stock footage uh, yeah. in, their, in their jokes, and that does strike me as, like, particularly 90s. That happens, like, all the time on, like, preceding shows like Freakazoid and, and Tiny Toons and what have you. And, uh, yeah, it still works. What were you going to say, Riley? Uh, while I was watching this with my roommate, uh, he looked up to see, like, what stadium that was, and uh, it's apparently just some, like, co- I forget if it's college football or not, but it's in Nashville, Tennessee, which is landlocked, as we all know. Oh, uh, no wonder they were excited <laughs> to see some sea creatures. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all right, and the last one that I had written down was Sailor Mouth. This one's a personal favorite of mine it's not my favorite episode but it's up there i mean i looked at a couple of fan lists and it's almost always in the top 10 Mm -hmm. yeah this one's kind of nutty for me personally too because like man this is making me realize just how uh, maybe not a bright kid i was i never really like watching it as a child i never really registered me like i knew they were saying they were swearing but i never registered with me that they were saying like actual swear words and it was being bleeped out i considered like the noises they were making to be the swear itself so i thought like in universe like that's their version of a swear i don't know why my my brain went through my little kid brain went through all these uh poops and uh did all these tricks to reach that logic but uh watching it now i was just wow it's like hey everybody how the ah, are you <laughs> hey everybody how are you and I had a similar uh, encounter with Tiny Toons when, you know, I was a very small kid. If you don't know, Tiny Toons is basically like a Looney Tunes like a sequel where like younger versions of uh, cartoon characters go to a school to mm, learn how to be so Looney cute. from like Bugs Bunny, Daffy oh, Duck I and love, so on. I love Tiny Toons. I yeah, remember and, them galore. And yeah, and all of them have like younger counterparts, except since, you know, Bugs Bunny is genderqueer, he gets Babs and Buster Bunny. But like Foghorn oh, yeah. Leghorn has a younger version of himself called Foulmouth, who talks constantly in profanity. Uh-oh. And because he, yes. he beeps all the time, I thought that the beeping was what was bothering everybody. Like, they were, he was being, like, really shrill and piercing. How are you doing that with your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, when SpongeBob goes around to the back of the Krusty Krab to take out the trash, he reads some graffiti written on a dumpster, one of which contains a word he does not understand. <laughs> SpongeBob asks Patrick, who says that the word is a sentence enhancer, which is used when you want to talk fancy. The next day, SpongeBob walks into the Krusty Krab and says the word to Patrick and then over to the intercom, causing the customers to complain and leave. Like, he doesn't have to work, Lou! Squidward then informs Mr. Krabs, who tells them that they were using bad words. Uh, He mentions that there are 13 bad words that they should never use, although Squidward thought that there were only seven. He's like, not if you're a sailor. (laughs) Spongebob. (laughs) 
<laughs> SpongeBob and Patrick vow to never use the eleventh bad word again. Later, they play their favorite game, eels and escalators. SpongeBob loses and accidentally utters the bad word in frustration. Patrick then races to the Krusty Krab to tell Mr. Krabs with SpongeBob trying to stop him, which is very much a kid thing. I know, and like whenever I hit one of my siblings and they'd run crying to mom, I try to beat them there, like run past them, you know, because if I got there first, that means I could tell my story first. Yeah, he started yeah. it. <laughs> I'm sure Rachel will relate to this as a sibling of a sister. I, uh, oh boy. My sister and I, it was each for each their own. We sold each other down the river, so to speak. Whichever analogy you want to use. Awful, awful. I mean, Lydia and I, we were like both, we would both get the other in trouble, but then sometimes we would be naughty together. And I feel like that was just worse. Like, we were wrestling in the hallway and we busted a wall in my parents' house. So I guess I put her in a headlock and she, like, threw me into the wall. Patrick also (laughs) uses the word during the chase, leading Uh SpongeBob to burst through the front door and tell Mr. Krabs that Patrick said the bad word, with Patrick joining along. Eventually, Mr. Krabs stops their gibberish explanations and tells them to simply explain the problem. (laughs) Once they do, Mr. Krabs angrily removes them from the restaurant and prepares a punishment. SpongeBob and Patrick make a vow to stop using the bad word again and to be good citizens like Mr. Krabs. Debatable. Uh, As Mr. Krabs (laughs) is about to tell them to paint the restaurant as punishment, he hits his foot on a rock, prompting him to yell out all 13 bad words in pain. When SpongeBob and Patrick hear the bad words, they run to Mama Krabs' house to tattle on him. (laughs) Not Uh, me, old mother. Her heart can't take it. The three reach her house at the same time and all explain what happened at once, saying the same bad words in the process. After she briefly faints, Mr. Krabs accuses them of causing her to faint before Mama Krabs regains consciousness and chastises them all for their actions. She then tells them to paint her house as punishment. <laughs> Later, Mama Krabs goes to Get reward it. them with lemonade for their hard work, but she hits her foot on a rock like Mr. Krabs did. And when she complains about her injury, SpongeBob, Patrick, and Mr. Krabs are shocked at her apparent bad language, although the noises turn out to be old man Jenkins honking his jalopy. <laughs> Hi, Mrs. K. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I looked this up to see if any, like, Christian fundamentalist parents groups bitched about it while you came out, and of course they did. Oh, and yeah. It feels kind of silly. Be- the last time. It feels kind of silly because, I mean, th- this is another one of those things where, like, every kid comes across this. When you're like, say, 8 to 13, the idea of saying motherfucker is just inherently funny because you're being a little transgressive and naughty. That's just a natural part of growing up. Even if I personally wasn't old enough to know what words they were specifically saying, I was well old enough to understand the concept of swearing and that you shouldn't do it. It was like kind of a forbidden thing. I love the fact that they're called sentence enhancers (laughs) because they sure are. There's even like a scene in Star Trek where they kind of say, oh yeah, there's sentence enhances and they don't know how to swear and Kirk's like double dumbass on you there's just a knee-jerk reaction to blame the media from groups like this and I mean nine times out of ten you're just like where did you hear that word it was from daddy yeah it was really funny though because when I was a kid I went on a really disastrous hike with my dad my uncle and three of my cousins and my one cousin Malik, his mom is a very neat woman. So his house growing up was like always like super clean. And he was not ready to be out in the mud. And he was so frustrated and he just screamed, stupid! 
screamed really loudly, and we were all like seven to five years old. And my other cousin Mark was just like, "Daddy, Malik said a bad word." <laughs> uh, let's yeah, go into. Into I got in trouble at a friend's house because oh, why? I was I said uh, shut up, and they like they're like oh, I'm telling my mom. Oh yeah, shut up was a bad word too in my house. Yeah, and then they went and told uh, their mom. And I just remember overhearing the mom being like, well, you know, some bad words are not bad words in other houses. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, blanks, mom. Yeah. <laughs> so it's arbitrary. I knew it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> All right, for the creation of SpongeBob. Uh, SpongeBob was a creation by committee. That's a word I use a lot on the show. Most cartoons are creations by committee. However, the character's main creator and guiding light is inarguably Steven Hillenburg. May he rest in peace. Uh, Hillenburg was fa- Hillenburg was fascinated by both art and the ocean from an early age, but he opted to study marine biology in college because he felt that this would lead to a stable career. He would later joke that um, actually animation careers are a lot more stable than science careers, especially lately. Aw, oh, man. Horrifying to think about. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, because uh, animation is still a pretty rough job. I was just saying, considering how things are right now, especially in the animation industry, I guess, specifically. Uh, He spent a few years teaching marine biology to children at the Orange County Marine Institute. While there, Hillenburg was asked to draw a comic book about animal life and tidal pools. He created a comic called The Intertidal Zone, which was hosted by a character named Bob the Sponge. Hmm. Many other SpongeBob characters originated in this educational comic. In 1987, Hillenburg left his career to study animation at CalArts. Specifically, he majored in experimental animation with Jules Engel. Uh, Engel is a very legendary animation figure. He worked on fucking Fantasia. Oh, Uh, shit. That's amazing. At this point, Hillenburg uh, began working relationships with many future SpongeBob staff members. He graduated in 1992 after directing the shorts The Green Beret, 91, and Wormholes, 92. Uh, Wormholes was screened in competition at the 1992 Ottawa International Film Festival. Joe Murray, whose film My Dog Zero was also in the running, was impressed by Wormholes and offered Hillenburg a directorial position on his Nickelodeon show, Rocco's Modern Life. Hillenburg, who had sunk thousands into wormholes and wasn't entirely sure how he was even going to find the money to get home from Ottawa, jumped at the chance. Stranded in Canada. The basis for rock bottom. Uh, (laughs) Hillenburg worked closely under Murray, uh, not only directing episodes, but also writing, producing, and storyboarding. In 1995, when Murray stepped back uh, due to burnout, Hillenburg served as creative director for the fourth and final season of Rocco. A third season, uh, Hillenburg-directed episode, Fish and Chumps, centers on Rocco and his friends going on a fishing trip while oblivious to the fact that a group of anthropomorphic (laughs) sea monsters under the water were fishing for them. Many see this episode as sort of like a proto-Spongebob pilot. Yeah, I have seen a little bit of Rocco's Modern Life, but not since I was a kid. You watched it, right, Riley? Yeah, I watched it. I watched the the movie that came out this last couple of years, but I certainly don't have a, a good enough memory because they were kind of panning out the reruns by the time I was watching Nickelodeon, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, you watched it, though, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was right in the Target demo when Rocco debuted. Um, Rocco was a big deal to me. It is very important in my heart, even <laughs> if it's kind of a footnote now. 
It's actually common for people to cite the whole of Rocco's modern life as a proto-Spongebob since much of the cast and crew would migrate over. And yeah, its tone, aesthetics, and style of humor share a great deal of artistic DNA. And as a 90s kid who loved Rocco, I do chafe at the idea of Rocco existing as nothing more than a prelude to Spongebob, but that's really my hang-up to deal with. It's kind of inarguable at this point. Uh, people have decided that Rocco is the ancient Greece to um, Spongebob's Rome. <laughs> that's interesting. I, I guess I don't really have much of an opinion because I didn't watch nearly as much Rocco, or I'm not as nearly as familiar with Rocco's modern life as I am with Spongebob. But I like to, be, I don't know, maybe that's just the optimistic of me. I like to believe that Rocco's modern life has its own leg to stand on outside of Spongebob, outside of being a precursor. I think so too, but you know, we'll see how history treats it. A lot of Hillenberg's key working relationships on Rocco included uh, storyboard artist Derek Dryman, director-storyboard artist Tim Hill, writer-director Nick Jennings, and voice actor Tom Kenny. Hey. Tom Kenny was voicing Heifer. Rocco writer Martin Olson, uh, however, was the one who got a hold of the intertidal zone and encouraged Hillenberg to pitch a show to Nickelodeon. Hillenberg claimed that he decided to work out a series Bible while driving to the beach and thinking about how kids used to be so excited when they were taught about tidal pool life when he was giving the lecture. And he's like, especially when they got to the sea sponges, and he's like, yeah, kids are just inherently interested in stuff like this. Maybe I should create some cartoon characters based on those figures. I watched SpongeBob in science class and we were studying invertebrates. We had to write down like each species of all of the characters and their scientific names. It was fun. There is a oh, yeah. there is a species of sea sponge named after SpongeBob. It'd be more surprising if there wasn't. Oh, that's good. But yeah, uh, yeah. In particular, this uh, sea sponge is noted for its ability to attract symbiotic relationships with starfish. <gasps> oh, that's so, perfect. That's so, that's so, so good. So like, well, we know who, who we're naming that after. Yeah, SpongeBob. <laughs> Uh, in order to contrast mm-hmm. contrast against buddy comedy shows like Ren and Stimpy, Hillenberg decided to focus on a single protagonist. He saw his main character, at this point named Spongeboy Ahoy, as a <laughs> mixture of Pee-wee Herman, Mighty Mouse, Jerry Lewis, Charlie <laughs> Chaplin, Ween's 1997 album The Mollusk, and Stan Laurel, particularly Stan Laurel. Uh, he was also a big fan of E.C. Cigar's Popeye strips, which, once again, it would have been surprising if he wasn't. Because it's the C. But I can see the Pee-wee comparison real easily. I can see a lot of Stan Laurel in SpongeBob. I'm not as familiar with those. Hillenberg knew he was onto something once he tweaked SpongeBoy's design to look less like a natural sea sponge and more like a rectangular synthetic kitchen sponge. <laughs> it's cute. I mean, SpongeBob's that parents and choice. yeah, SpongeBob's parents and grandparents are natural sea sponges, though. Well, there is some yes. talk about how <laughs> shapes are used to construct characters because that's true. Humans see like circular characters as being like inherently friendly and trustworthy, hence Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see triangular characters as being kind of like edgy and dangerous, like Batman or Bart Simpson. Uh, square characters or rectangular characters are seen like as like solid and familiar and relatable and something that you can project yourself onto, like you know SpongeBob or Mr. Fredrickson from Up. Yeah, that Whoa. works really well. Oh, wow, that's, that's, uh, wow. I never really thought about it like that. Also, it made me realize that uh, that one bully of SpongeBob from another episode that we're not talking about. Is he the one where he's the flounder? Yeah, he's the flounder. He's and, scary. Uh, he, I'm not even going to try to remember his name, but he. Something flounder. I think it's Doug Flounder. Yeah. 
Tom Kenny recalls that Hillenberg first approached him about voicing SpongeBob after he had already designed all of the main characters, settings, and backgrounds. <laughs> uh, Hillenberg clearly Gosh. saw the clearly saw the characters and their relationships to be far more important than the plots. Uh, Kenny claims that it only took a couple of seconds for him to find a voice that made Hillenberg smile and say, "That's the one. Nice to meet you, SpongeBob." Uh, apparently, oh, Tom. Cry, I know. <laughs> Tom Kenny had to like take helium to practice with the SpongeBob voice. Yeah, when asked about what, when asked about what Hillenberg was like as a person, Kenny said that um, he was like uniquely gifted at tr keeping like his personal vision intact as the show was being packaged through corporate, and which he considered to be like a very very rare feat. He compared it to uh, other uh, animators that he worked with, like Gendy Tartakovsky or uh, Craig McCracken, saying that, like, yeah. from start to finish, from, like whether it was uh, Dexter's Lab or Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, somehow they were able to sneak everything past the suits, or at least enough of it, so that they still had their voice <laughs> left. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into it more, but um, I was thinking as I was watching these episodes, like, why this, why SpongeBob is kind of like what sets it apart from other cartoons not only made now but like made when the show was released and I feel like that might be part of it it's just like the rare uh, the rarity of being able to have control for so long especially with such like you know with Spongebob making as much money as it did even early on they probably were like gimme 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 <laughs> according to Dryman uh, Hillenberg's initial plot idea was for uh, Spongebob and Squidward to go on a disastrous road trip modeled after Powell Highway uh, Hillenberg soured on pitching Spongebob via storyboard as Nick was moving away from storyboard first cartoons and emphasizing full scripts, although they would stick to that uh, eventually as they kept going. The idea for the road trip was eventually refashioned as pizza delivery in season one, which is another fan favorite one from as far as I can tell. In this very first pilot idea, Patrick Starr was originally the owner of a greasy spoon, and he was this posturing tough guy who had a real chip on his shoulder about being pink. <laughs> uh, that version of the character didn't last very long. Yeah, I like, you know, it is Patrick a himbo? You know, himbo's Patrick, you know, is much better than, like, jerky Patrick, you know? He's yeah. so stupid, but he doesn't have, like, a mean bone in his body. I mean, he doesn't have a bone in his body because he's a starfish. But I saw, uh, I was looking up different articles about, you know, the show for research for the podcast, but uh, I saw the voice actor of Patrick, he mentioned how he does Patrick's voice. He slows his speech and then he pretends his mouth is, is in his chest which I found pretty fun. That actually makes a lot of sense, though. Right? Mm-hmm. Actually, that's comparable to how Dan Castellaneta describes his Homer Simpson voice. Oh! Mm-hmm. Like, if you ever see him do Homer, like, he buries his chin into his neck. <laughs> it, it doesn't look fun. Uh, Hillenberg cobbled together a script for Help Wanted and pitched it to Nickelodeon clad in a Hawaiian shirt and a saltwater aquarium with little models of each character. Oh, that's so Sweet. According to Nick, Vice President. Before I learn the war, I'm gonna like tear up throughout this recording. My God, he loves the, he, these characters so much. My God. Mm -hmm. According to Nick, Vice President Eric Coleman, the razzle dazzle didn't impress him as much as how Hillenberg had already developed the character relationships and made SpongeBob Ahoy seem like a fun little world that you could hang out in. And people do. People still go to Bikini Bottom to hang out. 
Hillenburg soon recruited storyboard director Paul Tibbet and layout artist Kenny uh, Pittenger, both Cal Arts alumni who were working on Cat Dog at the time. Which I have seen more of Cat Dog than I did of Rocco's Modern Life. Yeah, Me Pitt- too. Pittenger likes the joke that he'd like to go back in time and slap himself over fretting whether or not he should leave Cat Dog to work on the Sponge Boy thing. <laughs> Uh, Jay Lender. I mean, well, funny, funny story. Um, and Disney, um, all of the people who were working on Aladdin were very hoity-toity and snobby to the people working on that dumb talking lion movie. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Although that movie went through some production hell, so I could see in the early stages them being like, Movie. Yeah, but now it's like you worked on the Lion King, the oh, Lion yeah, King. Now it's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Uh, Jay Lender, who was writing and storyboarding for Hey Arnold at the time, immediately jumped ship for SpongeBob uh, <laughs> when he saw some test footage of anchovies swarming the Krusty Krab. Yeah. He's like, this is a winner. I'm joining this team. Yeah. Music editor Nick Carr met Hillenberg while he was restoring uh, Carl Stallings' Looney Tunes shorts and moonlighting on Rocco's Modern Life. Uh, Hillenberg asked him to polish the music for the SpongeBob pilot, which was a no-budget rust job since they blew the music budget on licensing the Tiny Tim song, Living in the Sunlight, Loving in the Moonlight. I feel like that's like one of the few moments of not like the, you know, the easygoing Hawaiian music that plays through the rest of SpongeBob. Well, I mean, yeah. before we started, we, we refreshed ourselves in a couple of SpongeBob yes. shorts, and um, you you made me watch the uh, Squidward is Handsome one. Yes. And yeah. I paid attention to the musical cues on that one, and it does run the gamut. There's definitely some um, pedal steel guitar going on there for the Hawaiian effects, but uh, there's also a lot of like mid-1950s uh, exotica cues going on. When Squidward is running away from the mob, they're like alluding to the Hard Day's Night yes, soundtrack. Yes, the Beatles, and then <laughs> the Pagliacci is playing at the end when he's falling. So yeah, Car, <laughs> car has to jump around a lot, but mm-hmm. it, it's still cohesive. Yeah, I was hanging out with people and we put on like the spongebob lo-fi station it was just so relaxing i am um, while i was uh, watching all the episodes i kept pausing to watch the credits because i was like i gotta see like who did the music and mm-hmm. everything like all of the sounds and stuff because it's so like that's also a big part of what separates it from other shows i think According to supervisor director Alan Smart, his most vivid memories of the early seasons were straining to figure out how to make various effects happen. <laughs> like there was this bit where like everything is chrome in the future. Yes. How the hell are we gonna do that? <laughs> SpongeBob has to interact with a live action pencil. Oh, how the hell are we gonna do man, that? We should have watched Doodle Bob. That, that ended up being uh, one of the ones we had to, to skip because. It was incredibly difficult just to narrow down the episodes from like the first three seasons. So hard to do. It took roughly a year for the SpongeBob pilot to be conceived, pitched, accepted, storyboarded, recorded, and animated. Uh, Things got chaotic as nobody knew how to draw the characters consistently (laughs) or how or if the show would come together. Like one of the reasons everyone had so much trepidation over jumping from their like established gig on say Cat Dog Mm -hmm. was because Nickelodeon hears like dozens of pilots a year and only a few of them get animated into an episode and only a few of those get picked for a show so nothing is guaranteed. Guaranteed. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, the whole way through, everyone was like, when I interacted with Hillenburg, I never heard him say merchandise once. That was not where his mind was. Mm-hmm. He just loved the sea creatures. 
He yeah. just loves something so passionately, he mm-hmm. had to release it to the world. Yep. <laughs> Some crew members were Ren and Stimpy vets and found Hillenberg to be a nice contrast to the volatile John Chris Felusi. Hillenberg was calm, measured, patient, and willing to accept input from his subordinates. He's also been frequently called a private measured person. Everyone said that he was painfully shy. Um, One guy said, I worked next to him for six years and I never saw him outside of work and he never talked about anything that happened to him outside of work. That's very quiet. Oh, I was just going to say, this is uh, already uh, crushing my hopes of ever getting a biography about this man, because, uh, gosh, I want to know so much about him, about the the mind behind this beautiful piece of art. His family members described him as um, a workaholic who was very dedicated to his craft. Oh, Animators didn't know how to make Spongebob move at first, because, <laughs> uh, you know, it was hard to find a rhythm for every character, or, like, how they shift and so on. Yeah, but then I... they started studying how Hillenberg himself <sighs> walked, and they're just like, oh, he's Spongebob. It's funny, because, oh like, Mr. Krabs, Mr. Krabs walks, and all a lot of the characters who walk have sound effects. Like, Mr. Krabs' feet go, and, you know, you know, Squidward goes, because his tentacle, his suck and shuck sucker is on his feet. And, you know, Spongebob is squeaky. What's Patrick's noise? I don't know. I don't know if Patrick has a noise. He's just a big, dumb starfish, unfortunately. As I mentioned earlier, Spongebob Squarepants is a storyboard-driven cartoon, much like Looney Tunes and early Nicktoons like Ren and Stimpy or Rocco's Modern Life. In other words, Hillenberg would take a loose plot, have a basic script written, and then hand it off to a two-person storyboard team. Uh, This duo would then take the basic spine of the story and bounce gag ideas off each other, constructing things with post-it notes on a wall. Digital tablets came in for season three, which a lot of people complained about, but now it's just accepted. SpongeBob stories are 11 minutes long, but they'll do 12 minutes of material, so they'll have some wiggle room for edits. Comics artist Sam Henderson was instrumental to this in the first season, despite his lack of animation background. Uh, he was credited as a storyboard director, even though, according to him, he was just a gag writer. Aww, <laughs> that's sweet. The SpongeBob team had burned through every single plot springboard they had by the end of season one, so (laughs) Meriwether Williams was brought on as a story editor. She had the SpongeBob staff read Ray Bradbury's Zen and the Art of Writing and explain three-act structure to them. She said that they knew what it was, but they didn't know that they had words for it. Aw, that's sweet. Uh, She also began engaging the staff in creativity exercises, having them do, like, exquisite corpse stories, where, like, they'd all sit in a circle, and then somebody would tell a sentence, and then the next person would add to that sentence, and so on and so forth. Uh, Yeah, they had, like, a noun game, too, where they would just have to make a story based off a noun they pulled out of a hat or something like that. That's very Mad Libs of them. Yeah, Mary Mother's main contribution was the noun game, as Riley intimated, where she had people write nouns on a piece of paper, although she said verbs were allowed and nouns were more of a general guideline. (laughs) Whoever drew the noun out of the hat had to think of a SpongeBob story in one minute. They had a little egg timer for it. Damn, that's actually really good, though. This always started a discussion, and a lot of SpongeBob episodes started out with the noun game. That's fun. I did something like that in leadership club in uh, in high school. (laughs) Nice. Jay Lunder warmly recalled that he pitched the Nosferatu gag at the end of the graveyard shift and was thrilled when Hillenberg uh, was amenable to it. Still, he (laughs) lamented that he had to track down workable Orlock footage in a pre-Google world, which took forever. That's 
really oh, ambitious. God, right. That's dedication. And boy, did it pay off because it's one of the funniest freaking gags. Yeah, he said, he's like, I felt like I was wasting months of my life, but now people are still talking about it, so... Of course. It's so good. Mm -hmm. uh, many episodes are based on personal experiences. As I mentioned before, Sailor Mouth was taken from Dryman's experience about learning about the existence of bad words <laughs> and then getting in trouble with his mother. Yep. Uh, the first episode of Spongebob aired after the Kids' Choice Awards, which in the late 90s was a plum position reflective of Nick's confidence with the character. I recently learned that they're still doing the Kids' Choice Awards. I, I don't... I, don't you want to go and get slimed, Ryan? I don't know. I award shows in general... It's yeah. a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, award shows in general feel a little um, behind it, but like I heard they had like, Kenan Thompson host it recently, and it's like, well, he's Nick Royalty, so that makes sense. Oh, yeah, but Riley, you got to be slimed at the hotel? Yeah, they had little in the morning at the water park that's like in the middle of the hotel because it was like a like an O shape. Mm -hmm. uh, they had little games that they did at the in the morning and uh, like they did like two rounds and I was like super enthusiastic. Like you thought I would like was on meth, but I was not because I was just a child. <laughs> so I got slapped and it was a lot of fun. But also speaking of Nick Choice Awards, uh, I was looking through my DVD case and I was admiring one all my DVDs the Spongebob that I have. Uh, and also, I have, for some reason, uh, a DVD of the Nickelodeon Choice Awards from 2006. I love just, that. We I need like, to watch it sometime. <laughs> yeah, do we? Do we, though? It, it probably would be an interesting little time capsule. Yeah, for sure. Within a month, Spongebob overtook Pokemon as the most popular kids show on TV. Damn. Nick began Ooh. airing the show... Damn. Yeah, especially in the late 90s, it was all Pokemon. Nick began airing the show multiple times on weekdays in prime time in order to boost exposure, and they were also convinced that Spongebob could be appealing to adults and older teenagers, and they were right. Yep. It oh, yeah. It netted one, uh, 15 million viewers on average, with at least a third of those being adults. That's a lot. And, like, I made, like, there's, like, a meme sort of, like, you know, it's really hard to communicate with people who've never seen Spongebob because, like, I made, like, a, a Spongebob joke to my coworker and this older woman, she must have been in maybe, like, her 60s, she was, like, yeah, Spongebob. <laughs> <laughs> and she did, like, not a stereotype, but she did not look like somebody who watched his cartoons. Like, she was very, like, oh, yeah. neat. She had nice clothes on, jewelry, a, an expensive purse, but apparently she loved Spongebob, which I was like, yeah. <laughs> the humor is very timeless in a different mm -hmm. way. It's like the adult humor in the show is very different than how, like, Animaniacs humor was, you know, where it was kind of like a dirty joke that, like, was not for a kid, but, like, they were still funny to to the kid, but, like, it's funny for a different reason to the adult, especially the food service jokes, basically. I mean, there, the fact that Steven Hillenburg was a, you know, marine biologist um, was important for sneaking an inappropriate joke past the sensor. So, you know the scene in the Kevin the Cucumber episode, he has, like, a little yes. fleshy crown on his head, and then at the end, SpongeBob rips it off, and he's like, no, I have your crown! He's like, that wasn't a crown um if you look it up a uh, sea cucumber those were his genitals and that was really <laughs> <laughs> <I know. Yeah. laughs> so oh god yeah, 
yeah, that just, and you know that Steven Hillenburg did that on purpose and knew he could get away with it because nobody oh, knew yeah. that. <laughs> He's playing 4D chess. Yeah, he is. At all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hillenburg served as SpongeBob showrunner for seasons one through three, halting production to work on the 2004 SpongeBob movie. Which is very fun. Have you seen it, Ryan? No, I have not. Maybe, maybe I should make you watch it. I know the film was dedicated to... Wait, did he say he hasn't seen the the first Spongebob? I haven't seen either of them. We need to fix this. (laughs) I'll fix it, I promise. The the first Spongebob movie was... The best movie of all time. I'll take your word for it. Uh, The movie, which is apparently the greatest movie of all time, was dedicated to Jules Engel, uh, Hillenberg's mentor, who had died that year at the age of 94. I mean... Damn, good for him. Oh. But that's really sweet. Yeah. At the time, it was believed. That belie- is really sweet. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was believed that the movie would serve as SpongeBob's swan song. For kids' television, longevity was unthinkable. The dominant philosophy was that after three years or so, the show's audience would have aged out and moved on to other things, as kids are fickle. Since that's enough time to produce 65 episodes and secure syndication, it was often thought that it would be better to cut things off and produce a new show for new kids instead. Uh, This idea backfired on Nickelodeon when they canceled Rugrats after three seasons. A pair of seasonal holiday specials focused on Passover and Hanukkah were massive hits that proved the series had plenty of gas left in the tank. So Rugrats got six additional seasons, three three theatrical films, and an aged-up spin-off show. This might have influenced Nickelodeon execs to keep their shows running for as long as people were still watching them, SpongeBob being the main beneficiary, but also, like, say, the Fairly Odd Parents. God, is the Fairly oh, Odd yeah, Parents remember, still oh, on? I think a live-action oh, spin-off. I nobody... being... Oh, <laughs> uh, who wants to go? You go first. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, I remember being younger, and uh, not necessarily... I don't remember when exactly when you'd be an artist, but I remember thinking, like, yeah, it would be nice to, like, someday work on SpongeBob, but there's no way it's still going to be around by the time I'm old and, like, you know, <laughs> a working, like, adult, but mm-hmm. <laughs> how silly of me to think that they wouldn't milk this for all it's worth. <laughs> Needless to say, Nickelodeon kept Spongebob going after the 2004 movie. Hillenburg, fearful that Spongebob would jump the shark, tried to end things, but found out that that wasn't going to happen. He did not have the power to end the show. Nope. He decided to resign as showrunner, turning things over to Paul Tibbet. Uh, Hillenburg did, however, keep on as executive producer, and he reviewed each episode before it aired. Hillenburg took an active hand in the 2015 film Sponge Out of Water and was planning to return to the show when he was diagnosed with ALS. Which is an incredibly evil disease. My my yeah. uncle Dave passed away from it in 2013. And it just really, it's just evil. It, your body just slowly shuts down. You know, it's a fate I would not wish on anyone. Uh, Hillenburg died in 2018 at the age of 57. And 57? That's still so young. That's so young. That's too young. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. people have drifted in and out of the show since. Tibbet isn't running things anymore. I think Bob Camp, who uh, took over Red and Stimpy after uh, John Chris Felusi was forced off the show, is mostly in charge of the day-to-day of SpongeBob, last I read. I haven't seen any of the new stuff, and when I do watch SpongeBob, I'm mostly watching for maybe, like, the first five seasons. 
Tibbet has complained about certain directions that the show has gone in since. Like, uh, he has mentioned about uh, Camp Coral, I think it's called. It's like a kid spinoff or yeah, something. It's yeah. like a kid spinoff, which goes completely against the lore that's been established in this very complicated universe. And also, Hillenberg didn't want SpongeBob to be a child either. He wanted him to be yeah, an adult wanted... as much as, a, as he could be an adult. According to uh, Tibbet. Yeah, he also didn't want spinoffs. <laughs> He like, was like, this is its own its own thing. And then he also didn't want celebrity appearances because he, he wanted the parents to want to watch the show, not just like because that someone they know is going to be on there. I mean, Ernest... of course, as soon as he's gone from the show, they bring in like... David Matt Bowie? Johnny Depp, what? I said David Bowie. He oh, yeah, David yeah. Bowie from the Atlanta Square Pantis. Yeah. I remember that special. I like that. Same. One. I played the video game. <laughs> According to Tibbet, uh, multiple times Hillenberg pulled him aside and said, if Nickelodeon tries to create SpongeBob Muppet Babies, I'm out. Oh, well, that happened. Oh, <laughs> um, oh. I was gonna say that that sucks, but I mean, there's Ernest Borgnine as you know Mermaid Man, but he really wasn't like I I don't know exactly a celebrity guest. Yeah. He's just more like a funny bit of casting. Okay, well, before we go into uh, themes, I figure we should run through the main cast. Uh, mm -hmm. First, we have Tom Kenny as SpongeBob. It's so weird hearing him as anything else, like the Ice King in Adventure Time, because I still hear SpongeBob in there. I don't hear him in Heifer, though. But, you know, I encountered Heifer first. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to look up Heifer, because I, I've never, I don't remember him that well, because I only watched Rocco's Modern Life when I was at, like, the gym daycare as a child. I yeah. think Heifer is, like, one of those characters voices that if you know it's Tom Kenny then you can definitely hear it but it doesn't have it's kind of doesn't have the same graveliness that Spongebob or the Ice King have personally I found Spongebob's voice to be an acquired taste maybe that's why I was turned off on it in the like early 2000s oh yeah because um like once again I was still into cartoons I was watching like the Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack and plenty of people who watch those shows were also watching Spongebob hmm but I guess kind of goes to show you that, like, the age range between the three of us on our experiences of Spongebob is very valuable. Because you were already a teenager when it came out. I was, like, a tween, and you were a bebe. No, I, I was a tween. I was, like, 14. I was okay. a bebe. Yeah, all right. So 14, 7, <laughs> give or take, and baby. <laughs> yeah, I was, like, between the ages of, like, 6 and 10. I was still watching Spongebob when I was, like, 12, which would have been in, like, 2010. You probably were watching a lot of, like, you know, the repeated classic episodes. Oh, I was watching a lot of the new stuff, too. Like, uh, uh, I still really liked Spongebob, and when I finally kind of teetered off of it, it, there wasn't any, like, breaking point for me. Like, I was still, like, fairly enjoying it, but I was just like, oh, I'm gonna move on to, like, Glee and Supernatural and stuff like that or whatever, you know? <laughs> I don't remember the line being that. Oh no, I was moving on to Sonic. That's right. That's I had gone to greener or bluer pastures. <laughs> um, uh, you, went, you went from the uh, dependable square to the edgy triangle. Yeah. Sonic is dangerous. <laughs> All right, next we have uh, Bill uh, Fagerbach as Patrick Starr. He's 
good. He has a really a random appearance as like the parent of like one of the kids that Jennifer eats in Jennifer's body. Because I was like, wait, why does that name sound familiar? And I looked it up and I was like, oh, he's Patrick. And sometimes in like some Disney movie, he's like incidental voices in like Pocahontas and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Even by voice acting yeah, standards, he has a wild IMDb. Oh, I'll have to look that up. Like he was on Coach. Okay, yeah, look at him go. All right, then we have uh, Roger Bumpus as Squidward. Uh, yeah, I feel like I haven't heard him in anything else other than like that one sketch in Heavy Metal. Uh, I recall from my early childhood, there was a Saturday morning cartoon for Carmen Sandiego. Not the game show, the cartoon. I remember the game show. Yeah, and the cartoon, like these two kids are like chasing Carmen Sandiego all over the world and they're learning geography and cultural facts while it's happening. Your, your usual thing. And this virtual reality giant head would be like give them little lectures about it. Oh. <laughs> and he was the head. Oh, damn. That's so neat. So you just hear Squidward's voice being like, hello kids, we're going to on. <laughs> Something that I picked up watching these episodes that I never picked up before is that the guy, uh, one of the people, the veterinarian that comes by to Squidward's house in the beginning of Bang Geeks when he's like, oh, we made a kind of call that there's a dying animal on the premises. That's also him. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love that. All right, then we have Clancy Brown as Mr. Krabs. I, I did not realize that that oh was Clancy God. Brown until just a few years ago, and it blew my mind. Because he doesn't yeah, sound doesn't like him. Clancy just, Brown until I was... Oh, sorry. <laughs> what are you saying? It's just like the sailor voice the whole time. Yeah, I, I didn't realize. It didn't connect the dots until I was watching Shawshank Redemption in my uh, uh, English 12 classroom. And I was just like, it was that, you know, see where he's talking because he's being like, mean old guard. And I was like, why does this voice sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> I turned to a guy next to me, I'm like, wait, is this Mr. Krabs? <laughs> I, this, Mr. Krabs committing a hate crime? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I watched him in, um, God, what the, Starship Troopers, where he's the mean <laughs> sergeant. <laughs> I think that was someone else. I primarily think of Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor. Like, that I, is true, though. I, I think Clancy Brown owns Lex Luthor about as much as Kevin Conroy owns Batman. I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a little bit of the Superman show, and he is a really good Lex Luthor. I mean, I also like Giancarlo Esposito as Lex Luthor, too, in the <laughs> Harley Quinn show. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with the Harley Quinn show, not as much as the other stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, it has the, uses the same character design as when Clancy Brown is voicing him, and it has a kind of, kind of a similar vibe. Mm -hmm. and that being said, there's one episode of uh, the Justice League cartoon where Lex Luthor and the Flash get their brains switched. Oh, yeah. And they just sort of have to, like, fake it as their respective personas until mm -hmm. they can figure out what's going on. But since, like, Flash is this goofy screwball, Clancy Brown gets to do all of these, like, himbo, jokey one-liners throughout the episode, and he's fantastic at I will it. have to look that oh up. Oh, my gosh. It's fun that you get to play. After this. Yeah, like, you get to play against type. You know, and he's forced to give a speech to the Legion of Doom, and he's like, Hello, fellow bad guys. Here is my evil plot. <laughs> Question the plot at your peril. So, yeah, he was able to use his Spongebob legs on that. Yeah, he's like, hey, Spongebob, bimmy boy. And his little, like, I, 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 laugh. I mean, that's that's where the Popeye comes out the, clo the closest. Yeah, I mean, it was really funny, though, because he's playing somebody in the new John Wick movie, and when his casting was announced, someone, like, quote-tweeted it as, like, Spongebob, me boy, I killed John Wick's dog. I, 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 I'm gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then we have Doug Lawrence's Plankton. Plankton is yet another oh, Rocco's yeah. alumni. He was a storyboard artist and director on Rocco and does the same role on uh, SpongeBob. He voiced Filbert, the turtle who is always nauseous on Rocco. And so oh, they asked him cool. if they asked him to audition for Squidward. And he came up with like this scummy Gregory Peck voice, and they're like, "We love that voice, but not for Squidward." And they oh decided God, that he yeah. was Plankton. Yeah, I'm sorry we didn't really watch a Plankton episode because I love Plankton, and I watched. So is... hmm? Go. Oh, sorry, you finished. I was gonna say I watched a video of how the SpongeBob voice actors get into character, and it's just him getting into character as Plankton. He just kind of goes. <laughs> he starts screaming and then he's just like you know i will get the crabby patties yeah so the so uh, i said about squidward how um i didn't really like him as a kid and even as a adult i'm still not as fond of his episodes as i am like others but plankton i didn't really like as a kid because he's the bad guy but <laughs> now as an adult i'm like oh my god this guy is just eating it up like every bit of dialogue is just so like enraptured and just dead serious it's like in band geeks when squibber's like uh so you know how when you uh, like when you talk louder people think you're smarter right correct yeah, yeah i like this the scene of him trying to play the harmonica and he's like running to each little <laughs> hole and going and then he just kind of like passes out what I learned while researching for this is that the voice of Karen, Plankton's computer wife, is married in real life to Tom Kenny. Yeah. No, that's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Plankton installed me on our first date. <laughs> that's like actually a line. Oh, God. So, yeah. I didn't realize that. <laughs> the people who voiced Mickey and Minnie throughout my childhood were married in real life. Aww. So, you know, Disney's real. <laughs> Turns out Disney's real. And then the last person I wrote down was Carolyn Lawrence as Sandy. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't really cover a Sandy episode here. Which is too bad because I, li- I love Sandy. You know, I always really liked her, um, especially in the episode where she's hibernating and, you know, SpongeBob and Patrick break into her house. So, something really cute. So, um, one of my cousins, um, he has autism and he... It's usually pretty quiet, but sometimes he'll repeat things from cartoons that he thinks are funny. And one of the things that he was, like, obsessed with for a while, a few years back, was he just kept saying, Oh, I'm Dirty Dan. And we were all like, yeah, Spongebob. So we talked about Spongebob, and I could he didn't really, you know, contribute to the conversation, but I could tell he was enjoying listening to us talk about Spongebob. <laughs> yes. All right, and that brings yes, us to... Sandy's introduction episode's really cute. I need to rewatch that. It's really sweet. It's a great way to, like, teach kids what it's like to make friends, especially from, like, different cultures. Uh, I know that um, somebody pointed out, like, during, like, the whole thing about comedians making jokes about marginalized groups, somebody analyzed the episode where Squidward, not Squidward, Spongebob, ends up making jokes about squirrels, and then other people think that because he's making jokes about squirrels, it means it's okay to bully Sandy. Yeah, that was so ahead of its time. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, that brings us to themes. Themes. Uh, the first thing I wrote down was uh, SpongeBob serving as the torchbearer for the golden age of animation. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's that's something that say Sylvan would resist because Sylvan's not a SpongeBob person, and that would kind really? of 
Yeah, uh, and Sylvan is very protective of the Looney Tunes as a cultural institution. Mm -hmm. uh, he would find it, I think, patently offensive to see uh, SpongeBob as, like, the one that is keeping things going. Like, Sylvan loves Looney Tunes to the point where I'm pretty sure he wouldn't support, like, arresting the people who made Space Jam for war crimes, <laughs> but only just so. Uh, yeah, um... But, yeah, SpongeBob is clearly indebted to it's the... Not the bones. Yeah, it definitely uh, is taking a lot of cues from the early anthropomorphic cartoon icons of the theatrical short era, starting with Gertie the Dinosaur, and then continuing with, like, Felix the Cat, Mickey Mouse, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Bugs Bunny, and ending with uh, the Pink Panther. I think the Pink Panther is basically where that stuff sort of ended. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you got into the TV animation, the initial characters that took off there, like Huckleberry Hound or Yogi Bear, they were very clearly, like, modeled after the theatrical short iterations, but... As, there's some Spongebob in there. Yeah, there's sure. Spongebob in there, too. But uh, as TV animation continued, it started finding its own voice because it's a different format and a different mm -hmm. medium. Like, if you look at all the other shows that were on around the same time as Spongebob, you know, your Kim Possible, Powerpuff Girls, so on and so forth, all of them have their kind of their own vibe. None of them are very Looney Tunes. Yeah, especially, I mean, I can't really say much about Powerpuff Girls because I didn't watch it that much as a kid, but... I loved Kim Possible. Like, I named my laptop Shego because it's black and green and powerful and it glows. But yeah, there really isn't any sort of, like, Looney Tune in there. I feel like, if anything, Kim Possible owes a great deal to, like, 60s spy shows. Yeah, and I mean, Spongebob isn't a perfect transition. Uh, the, as I mentioned already, the Spongebob episode is 11 minutes long, which is, you know, a Golden Age theatrical short is about seven minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, it which, would seem a lot longer. That means that Spongebob has more room to breathe and to have at least a little more plot construction to it. I mean, that being said, Spongebob has very little plot or character development. <laughs> Nobody learns a lesson. There's no growth. If you look at a season five episode, it's functionally the same thing as a season three episode. But it is more dialogue driven than Looney Tunes or Woody Woodpecker. That at the same time, it still has a lot of like physical humor to it as yeah, well. There really is usually not like any dialogue in a lot of like the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote cartoons. You know, besides like you know, the beep beep or just, you know, the, the um, Wiley Coyote just complaining about how he can't catch the Roadrunner. Well, I mean, there's no dialogue whatsoever. Those are in pantomime. <laughs> but like, even, even when like Bugs and Daffy are arguing over mm -hmm. which hunting season it is and those That's are a, a bit more dialogue driven, it's still mostly gunshot. Yeah. In uh in the first episode that has help wanted, there's also that little short between that one and the tree dome episode, which is reef blowers. And that one's completely silent, so that's kind of a little bit more Looney Tunes esque. Also, in uh Squidville at the beginning where we get to like the inciting incident of like SpongeBob Patrick being like just terrible neighbors and like causing a ruckus, there's the shot of when they vacuum away Squidward's windows and doors, but then afterwards there's uh he's just so angry. He's like like steaming, you know, like Looney Tunes cartoons. But then SpongeBob just says, "Squidward, you look like you look like steamed vegetables, but smarter." <laughs> and yeah, as I mentioned uh, a little earlier in this episode, uh, SpongeBob's like core inspirations included Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel. So they're stealing from like silent era and early talky um, comedians, which is pretty much what most of the Golden Age uh, theatrical shorts did too. So not only is SpongeBob lifting from them, but Spongebob is also lifting from the things that they lifted from. Yeah, I guess 
I want to ask the following question is, why do you guys think, you know, for all of our age differences, why is Spongebob still so popular? Like, the people probably aren't really watching, like, new episodes, but if you, like, say a line from Spongebob to, like, people in, like, our rough age group, someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, Spongebob. You know, it's like that, that Star Trek episode where anywhere, like, I only speaks in, like, metaphors and references. You could have a whole conversation in Spongebob references. I just think it's sort of timeless in that way. And, yeah, there is the nostalgia factor. But, you know, when I do watch episodes that I watched, you know, as a child, I'm still laughing. It's not maybe, like, Toy Story level of nostalgia, but it's there for sure. But it's still funny. I do think that it is... It's like you're, you're laughing for different reasons because yeah. it hits differently. Like the retail jokes and all the food service jokes. Yeah, I do think that it is rooted in a lot of like traditional elements of comedy. Like, like I said, you know, it's pulling back decades, even like a century at this point. And, and that stuff that it's taking from was still working on vaudeville and stuff. And obviously they're structuring it differently and there are little tweaks and uh, things added in, but... At the core, it's still speaking to the same human absurdities that animated our grandparents. And, uh, yeah, that rooted me to, like, this um, conversation of having amongst other film geeks over, like, why the Looney Tunes aren't super relevant anymore. And, like, some people saying that millennials are going to be the last generation that actually cherishes the characters, like, as characters and not as, like, mascots. And, you know, they're going back and forth with, like, well, kids don't like the slapstick stuff anymore. And I was like, that's bullshit. People love Spongebob. Something I just now thought of is it's possible that it seems like despite the kind of corporation hell that Spongebob's been going through over the last, like, two decades that, like, every show deals with, it seems like that even with Steven Hillenburg passing and, like, all these spinoffs, like, happening, it seems like they were able to kind of pass the torch within people who have worked on it since the beginning. Also, you've got the kind of lightning-in-a-bottle cast, like, the just the whole cast of people that luckily are all still around and still available enough to be consistently putting out episodes as, just as consistently as they were when it first came out, which is kind of rare nowadays. I think we're also living in like the era of streaming. So, I mean, you said that the Looney Tunes shorts, they're on HBO Max, right? They didn't get yanked? Yet? They got yanked. Okay, so, but that, there you go. Like, I grew up watching Looney Tune cartoons on DVD. Um, you know, kids yeah, are watching have, stuff on streaming. Yeah, I, I do. I still have Looney Tune DVDs. Same. I have the 50th anniversary on DVD in my little DVD case. Right next to my Spongebob DVDs. Hey! Yeah, I think the problem with Looney Tunes is that it, it, it's, it's its availability. Like, throughout my childhood, it was essentially what you threw on as, like, block filler on, on, on various syndication packages. Like, there was Looney Tunes on Nickelodeon. It eventually migrated to the Cartoon Network, but it was on network television. It was on like at 7.30 in the morning before going to school and it's not there anymore like Warner Brothers yeeted all of that away and uh, put it behind a walled garden HBO Max and now it's not even there yeah yeah I think if they kept rerunning Looney Tunes like seven-year-olds would glom onto them I feel like, uh, you know, unfortunately, Looney Tunes being as old as it is, it's just like, it's got, it's dealing with so many, like, you know, copyright stuff, just a lot of business, like, BS, essentially, and just kind of like, who owns what, and like, how are we going to make money off of this, that it can't not be a brand at this point, and there's just like, 
like Warren Brothers being as big as it is and just like being as just like of a shit show as it is currently especially like there's like a potential to have so many new projects like there was a no- one project that that was going to be like a Bugs Bunny like actual like full length future film and it was going to be animated and everything but then they just they're like halfway through production and then the guy just cut you know for tax purposes no biggie so it's like unfortunately the way animation is like Looney Tunes just doesn't have a shot anymore to be as memorable but that's not its fault which yeah. is to say it's not its fault it's just the people who are in control of it mm-hmm. right now i guess yeah i mean most of the shorts that were like directed by freeling and jones that everybody liked growing up they still work yeah and i think oh, yeah. that i watched a lot of like old and classic television because my parents introduced that to me so maybe millennial parents will be like we're not gonna watch bluey again we're gonna watch some Looney Tunes. I mean, no, no shade to Bluey. Bluey is great. No, of course. Different. But, listen, you're, it's like listen. Bluey's good, and it's good for emotional development. But it's time. It's time to shut the brain off for for. <laughs> Uh, the next thing I wrote down was shark jumping because, as we alluded to with Stephen Hill, uh, Hillenberg's theme, SpongeBob is frequently accused of that sort of thing. And this is how to join the same camp that you see The Simpsons, Weezer, Star Wars, or Metallica in, where, like, if you approach the fandom, one of the first things they talk about is, like, okay, when did you get tired of this? When do you think it stopped getting good? And for a lot of people, that is when Hillenberg pulled away. They, a lot of people consider seasons one through three and maybe the movie to be peak spongebob and that everything else you can just skip i know both of you are a little more um a little less um draconian than that yeah i mean i i think that my probably my spiciest media take is that most television shows are bad or they get bad (laughs) the especially american television shows there's like this need to keep something going far past its expiration date because of like I don't know popularity or money so when a tv show decides well we're going to end it now because we've told our story and that's the end it's all remarkable like for example the good place they're like we're going to end at the end of four seasons and if you watch it it has like you know a beginning a middle and an end it tells a complete story you know I don't think it would have been nearly as good if they had stretched out to maybe like five or maybe five but like up to seven seasons and at least with Spongebob, it's not like there's, like, a narrative story happening. There's just, like, you know, it's an incidental cartoon silly day. So you can kind of, like, ignore it. But let's say for, like, something like The Walking Dead, that was essentially a zombie show of a zombie show. Um, and, I mean, I knew so many people who were, like, huge fans. And then around season three, and then by season five, everyone that I knew who watched it had stopped. Especially yeah, after Glenn died, too. too. Yeah. Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I mean, on paper, SpongeBob can run indefinitely. As you said, it doesn't really have, like, a serialized, character-growth-driven mm-hmm. um, narrative to it. It's just, like, very basic concepts with well-defined characters engaging in silly antics. You can recycle that formula over and over again and do Goldberg variations levels of of innovation uh, Mm. from episode to episode and more or less keep it fresh enough to keep people coming back on paper. But I don't know, maybe 
SpongeBob is one of those things where, like, it's Riley's situation where it's just like, okay, you've had your fill of that. It's time for something else now. Like, I was I, just going to say, I think I'm a bit of a contrarian. Uh, one, because I guess, like, because I'm a, I'm a, like, a Zoomer. Uh, but also because uh, I think the show, the quality still stayed the same. You know, as, I think the, the quality of the show was kind of more of, a, like, I guess you could say a gradual decline. Which uh, So it wasn't just, like, oh, this is the episode where it, like, really drops off. That it might be the case for, like, something like, at least for me, like, with Supernatural, those other shows. I feel like with Spongebob. Bob, based on how like it's board driven and like how many creators are involved with it it might just depend on just like who's boarding it that week or something and also i haven't watched most recent ones uh like the most like last couple of seasons obviously but i feel like they might just be running into that thing where it's like the simpsons thing it's like well the show has just been on for so long we are there are so many ideas that we've done there's only so many more ideas although with this one there should be like endless ideas it's kind of just like i don't know going back who's in charge but also they had some pretty good ideas you know following the, at least i think some pretty good ideas following the movie uh especially not knowing that it was like paul Tippett who like ended up continuing like was past the gauntlet whatever like there was fear of a Krabby patty which was like the first episode of the first season after the movie was season four uh i particularly liked it because it introduced the concept of therapy to me <laughs> Um, and then they, you also got uh, Truth or Square, the medieval times. Oh my god, I love that episode. episode. I love it so much. I played like the mech games of it. And then there was also I remember liking Atlantis Square Pantis a lot. And I like and I like musicals, so you know. I, I liked it when I saw it. I remember watching it live, and I was like, it's David Bowie. Yeah, and then there was like a Western special. It was uh, they had some pretty good some pretty good stuff in there. I I feel like. The- the gradual decline is probably different than like jumping the shark i feel like with jumping the shark there's like an x point in anything where you can be like this is the it and it will never get good again after this that is the point like you know fonzie jumping over the shark was the end of happy days it was never going to be as good for example i i think that like I don't know. I'm trying to think of other like moments in TV shows where I was like, at least maybe where it was just like that was the moment the quality dropped forever. Like, not to be contrarian to your opinions on Star Wars, but I think though is that the Last Jedi was where, at least for me, the new Star Wars really jumped the shark quality-wise. If you look at like say how SpongeBob is aggregated and commented upon and remixed online, most of the meme templates are from the first three seasons. Yep. Although you did point out to me that Handsome Squidward is season five. Yeah, I I was like we have to watch it, so we watched it right before we recorded. <laughs> there are good, there are good bit, like chunk of memes. I swear that are, that happen like post. I mean, I guess like not as many, but uh, also that might just uh, because like a lot of uh, I guess like I don't know like millennials around Rachel's day it's just kind of just literally just grew out of it but uh, there's also just like the weirdos like me who even as I was growing out of it I was like I want to hold on to it because it's so good because I mean and it wasn't even like I had to hold on to it like I was forcing myself it was you know pretty good up until I kind of just like had to focus on homework all of a sudden yeah I don't think it's like I really stopped watching Spongebob because when it was on on Nickelodeon I would sit and I'd watch it but it's just like I grew up and I had other things that I needed to do yeah you just like literally just didn't have the time for it anymore unfortunately that does seem to be how a lot of things happen that way but um yeah at the same time like getting back to the memes like 
most of the Simpsons meme templates are from seasons three to eight, which is generally seen among oh. Simpsons aficionados as that show's golden era. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, in terms of Star Wars, the prequel meme templates are far and away way, uh, more popular than the other stuff. Like you'll oh, see, yeah. you'll see original tr uh, trilogy memes if you go looking for them, but the prequel memes show up on your feed whether you want them or not. Yup, yeah. There's literally a subreddit that's just prequel memes, and it's pretty funny. But speaking of The Simpsons, I wanted to ask you, is there like, you, I think you might have alluded to it before, but is there an episode that was like, that marked the end of like, good quality era Simpsons? According to Simpsons fans, the one where, uh, where the real Principal Skinner shows up is when the show goes down the hill. I'm not fully on board with that. I still think that there are good episodes in season nine. I think it's a, well, how you describe Spongebob where it's just the standard attrition. But that was like, but that's the moment where it never gets as good as it did before. That is retroactively cited as the end of Simpsons Golden Age, but mm -hmm. a lot of people point out that when that episode aired, that is when the internet started taking off as a thing, Ooh, and then yep. fans bitching about shows online was popular when, Simpson, yep. when Season Simpsons 9 came up, and that was like a new thing. So maybe that retroactively kind of colored it in a certain way. Yeah. And, and it's been like a new thing for um, shows, which I think is a terrible way to do storytelling, that they get upset when the audience figures something out, and then they change it so that they surprise the audience, and it's like, guys, foreshadowing. It's a thing. Like, it's okay if the audience figures it out, because, you know, sometimes the build-up and the excitement of being right is, like, a good thing. Like, there's this one thing in, like, a recent Star, Star Trek show where everybody guessed what the big reveal was going to be, and they didn't change it. They just kept ahead with it, and it felt good. It was, like, good storytelling. There wasn't any need to change it. All right, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything that either of you would like to say about SpongeBob SquarePants before we uh, sign off? Um, I was actually going to ask, Riley, what is your favorite SpongeBob episode? Oh, yeah, oh, we should get that. Wow, that's such a hard question. I know. Um, mine that's is it. the, um, what was it? Welcome to the, the Salty Spittoon. How tough are you? And, like, the My Sensors. It's like, My Sensors indicate that you are a weenie. And, like, I love that so much. It's my favorite. And just the scene where Patrick beats himself up is just so funny. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, and that's a good one for Sandy. Look when she grabs the guy's tattoo and goes. Give it a wedgie. Yeah, she grabs his tattoo, rips it off, which hurts as someone as with tattoos. And then she slaps it back on him. And it says "Wow" instead of "Mom." All right, Riley. Do you need a moment? Yeah. Do you need a moment to think about your favorite SpongeBob episode? Yes. Three <laughs> seconds. Hold on, because I'm like racking because I was thinking about this a lot. Um, actually, I think I am gonna like impulsively say I don't exactly remember what episode it's called, but it's the episode where SpongeBob and Patrick end up having to work for the Flying Dutchman for like the night or whatever. Yes, and that's like, a good one. Escape, but the only way out is. Through the perfume department. I remember looking forward to that episode being on a lot as a kid. But uh, in addition to our favorite episodes, well, actually, Ryan, what is your favorite episode of SpongeBob? Uh, I like Rock Bottom. Nice. But um, I've seen like 10 SpongeBob, so. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, you're just going to have to watch um, more. It's on Paramount Plus. Yeah, and it's on Amazon Prime if you want. Or you can just come visit me and watch it on DVD with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But I have several years worth of SpongeBob all on DVD, especially. Oh, uh, I will say another like close follow-up is the. Uh, it's not the Chrome one where they, you know, are cavemen, but it's the caveman special. But it's like SpongeBob. It's like something. It's SpongeGar. SpongeGar. It's SpongeBob BC before comedy, and I remember being a kid and like it was. My dad was like walking past the room and he heard like you know them say it like BC before comedy, and he like laughed really hard and I did like I didn't know what BC stood for but then like when I was in history class like years later like BC before Christ like oh <laughs> yeah see uh, it's the things that uh, that changes you get older and I think it just goes to show you that I can't believe I'm using this word when it comes to Spongebob but the quality of something is that you are able to enjoy it at multiple stages of your life Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it's it just, I feel like also, like, a part of the timelessness of it, like, the quality of it is that the what, what, the more we learn about it, just the more about Hillenburg and his process for, like, the production of this show. Much respect. It's just, like, as someone who has had to, like, do thesis, you know, for art school and stuff like that, it's, like, very clear, like, this is a guy who is able to, like, take one of his passions, marine biology, and combine, combine it with another one of his passions, which is like animation and art and in the process he created something just so beautiful and timeless you know mm-hmm. it brings i'm not getting emotional right now but it gets me a little like yeah. choked up sometimes mm-hmm. when i think about him yeah, just, and that it's just the fact that he just loves something mm-hmm. so much it's you know, very he, inspiring it's i wonder if he i bet he probably knew but that spongebob was his biggest gift to the world and that it would outlive him like i'm i if, as long as the world doesn't blow up i think people in 50 years will still be watching spongebob yeah and he's just so nice to have such like an optimistic happy character mm-hmm. that was something else that i was i walked on to as a kid i especially watching now i'm just like oh i very feel like the optimism even if people think you're weird for being optimistic yeah because like squidward he's never framed in like the right like sometimes i think spongebob and patrick are really annoying to him but like he's just kind of a big sourpuss and maybe he would enjoy life more if he just loosened up he never will because that's spongebob but there you go and despite being a sourpuss i like that uh even though he's constantly interrupted he does have his things that he does enjoy as a character you know Mm -hmm. so it's like they have that balance it's very Mm-hmm. It's, it's good art. Yes. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention mm-hmm. before we wrap up. I swear this is the last thing. Take your um, time. I want to talk a little bit about the music. Because, mm-hmm. like, uh, it's one of the, uh, another one of the reasons. And I think um, for at least some of the stuff, uh, I know this is probably the case for a lot of those 90s shows that were just, like, you know, kind of not given a ton of money at the very beginning. But a lot of the music was, like, I believe royalty-free for the most part. Like stock, I think it's like stock 60s music, right? Because that's the music from Always Sunny is just stock 60s music. Yeah, it's just stock music and uh, I even wrote down who does the music Gosh. Uh, Car. Hold on. Yes, Nicholas Carr, uh, he's one of the music editors. And then... Hey, they're very pretty. You showed me the picture. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, okay, so post-production sound uh, supervisor and mixer was Timothy J. Borges. Oh, God. I feel like I didn't pronounce that. You could just cut that. Borges? Borges? I don't know. It's like B-O-R-Q-U-E-E-Z. Borges? Borges, maybe? Borges? Thank you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, today, I was just like, yeah, say it like this. Um, I wrote down three names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, here it is. The music, it was, uh, you got music by, that's what I was credited in the credits. You know, I kind of checked each episode. It seemed to be like the same. The Blue Hawaiians, uh, Sage Guiden, and uh, Jeremy Wakefield, and then Steve Belfer. And then the main title uh, composer was Hank Smith Music. Although I learned in another one of the credits that Steven Hilberg actually wrote the lyrics in addition to, I think it was Dryman, but I'm not sure. But also, so there's that, like, for the show, which I think is, like, it's just, like, one of those little, like, flavors. Like, he obviously not only cared about the characters uh, and, like, the whole, like, thing marine biology, but he also was, like, seemed very, like, focused on the music and just having a very specific sound to it. And it's really fun how, like, throughout the show, you have, like, guests like Ween uh, on, you know? Uh, and the, the, for the Sponge... Well, I'll, I won't bring this up because it's for, uh, SpongeBob movie-related, but there was actually a song that uh, for an episode that we didn't do. It's the episode where SpongeBob learns to tie his shoes, which is also a very good episode. And there's a whole song called, like, Loop-de-Loop. He's like, yeah, Loop-de-Loop and pull. And shoes are looking good. And I be- and it's recorded and think written by Ween. And that song was made and Steven Hillenberg actually like reached out to Ween and was like, Hey, like, could you guys do a song for this? And this was before like it had even aired. So this was when the show was still in production. And it didn't air until like season two. Nice. Yeah, I know that some of the incidental music in SpongeBob is now going away because of the copyright change. Yeah, from, like, new episodes. I saw that on Twitter, and I was just very uh, surprised by that, you know? And What do you mean, like, going away? Like, that it's not going to use it anymore in new episodes. But, like, you bring up the sound and the music. Like, what I've noticed is that because the sounds and the music in SpongeBob is honestly so iconic, somebody has been putting it over, like, dramatic scenes from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I think they sent you the chicanery scene. Yes. And they just add, like, all of the SpongeBob, like, music and sound effects, and it works so well. He wants to be a lawyer. What a joke. Yeah. <laughs> or the... Like guitar twang. Yeah. Or the doo-doo. You know, like all of those like really <laughs> iconic SpongeBob sounds, but um, I don't, I don't have anything else I wanted. I just wanted to ask what everyone's favorite episodes were. Thanks for your little um, musical tangent. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, especially uh, if you ever cover the the SpongeBob SquarePants movie itself. You should have like, a whole segment for that because it's like uh, the show itself in those like first three seasons that Hillenburg worked on. It really felt like he was just like he was thinking about just like every little nook and cranny for his baby, which is SpongeBob. And then you do the movie, and it's got just all of that times ten. And he was actually like given the budget to do so, and it's just like. Yeah, chef's kiss. Mm-hmm. I'm a goofy goober. Rock. Yeah. So you, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I promise to make Ryan watch the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. All right. And with Please. that, I guess that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? SpongeBob, SpongeBob SquarePants. SquarePants. Yeah. <laughs> you me. Yeah. <laughs>